Hello, everyone. Welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the forum, and today I'm hosting forum co-founder Professor Victor Minaldo. Hello, Victor. Hi, Nick. Today, uh, we talk about big technology platforms, companies like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, commonly known as FANG. And these companies now make up around 12% of the US GDP. Uh, they are also a huge part of the recent positive development of the stock market during the global uh, pandemic. They have also grown in importance in the everyday life across the globe. Facebook, for example, now has uh, or had 2.7 billion users in 2019. There are over 3.5 billion Google searches being done every day, which amounts to 40,000 search queries every second. At the same time, though, there's a growing and diverse coalition of academics, lawyers, uh, consumer protection agencies, and a flurry of foundations, such as, for example, um, Sarah Miller from the American Economic Liberty Project. Uh, there's also George Soros. There's uh, the eBay co-founder, Pierre Omidyar. Uh, as well as the Ford Foundation, but also politicians of both parties, such as uh, Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley. And all of these groups and individuals um, and politicians are advocating for a breakup of big technology companies. And they do so under proposed entry trust legislation. Victor, could you first give our listeners a very short introduction to the topic at hand? As who are these big tech companies? What do they do? Why are they so important? And what is the problem? Why do all of these groups want to shut them down or at least break them up? Sure. I think it would be valuable to begin by defining what a digital platform is and discussing some of the contributions they've made to the economy. You mentioned some of them, but maybe we could flesh that out. And then we could get into the complaints and how that translates, if at all, into antitrust law and regulation of competition between firms and antitrust uh, enforcement. So I think I'll start by defining what a digital platform is. And it's a little bit complicated, uh, not too complicated, but it's not like a typical firm that produces goods and services. What it is, is a firm that brings different markets together. It's a many-sided marketplace. And for the digital platforms like the FANG companies that you mentioned earlier, it would be a company that brings together users, like Facebook users, let's say, uh, advertisers, developers, uh, like the folks that develop apps for Facebook or de develop apps for Google or Apple, handset manufacturers. So let's say the folks that supply the hardware that we use to access the platforms like Google and Facebook, Amazon. And the thing that makes these companies special is that they're able to achieve what are called network effects. And these are both direct network effects and indirect network effects. And this is what makes them very big and allows them to have even a global scale. So let me define network effects quickly, and then we can get into other things that make the digital platforms unique. A network effect is where the utility or value of using a product is a function not only of the 
satisfaction you get from it or whatever functions it performs for you, but it's also a function of the number of other users that are also purchasing the product or using, in this case, the platform or, or the social network, if it's something like Facebook. Could and you so, give us an example? Like, um, what about Uber? Yes, Uber has network effects in that I, as a Uber uh, rider, benefit from using Uber But I also benefit from having a bunch of other folks that have downloaded the Uber app onto their phones and are using Uber because that will lead to an increased supply of Ubers uh, and also an increased quality, let's say, because more folks can rate the Uber drivers. So I not only enjoy the benefits of the ride, but also enjoy other amenities uh, and other price advantages, let's say, because there's a critical mass of other folks using the app. Another aspect of network effects are indirect network effects. And this is perhaps the network effect that's most important for the digital platforms. So this isn't only, let's say, I derive uh, more value from using Uber because others are using Uber, but let's think about something like Google. There's indirect network effects in that advertisers are attracted to Google because there are so many users that are typing in search queries. So the critical mass of users of Google attract more advertisers to Google. And so the advertisers are able to spread their message across more people, or they're able to target their uh, advertising to folks that are using Google and the algorithms that have been tailored to some of these users. And the more users there are, the better the algorithms, for example. Not only are there indirect network effects between advertisers, let's say, and users on Google or Apple, for example, Uh, but developers and handset manufacturers, for example, are also attracted because of the critical mass of users or advertisers, let's say. So there are more developers developing apps or applications that are not necessarily the type of applications you download on a phone, but are still applications that involve computer engineering or computer scientists. And the handset manufacturers, let's say, are attracted to the Google Android platform. And therefore, many more will enter the market knowing that there are so many users, advertisers, and developers in that ecosystem, for example. Ultimately, the platform becomes better the more people are on the platform. Exactly. And the more people are on the platform, the reason it's become better is because more and more different parties or different markets are attracted to it. When whether users, exactly. advertisers, developers, or the hardware manufacturers. Now, this allows these firms to have global scale, and you mentioned some examples from Google and Facebook, but it also gives them a different flavor in terms of their business model or the way that they do business. For example, they have very high fixed costs of, let's say, developing the software or the algorithms or deploying them, of the research and development, et cetera, but their variable costs might be pretty low in that to get an additional user on the platform, it might be very cheap, it might be instantaneous, and it might just mean downloading an app or something like that. The cost per user, in terms of the cost that the firms incur, might be incredibly minimal, if not zero. But the cost to get the platform running or to improve the quality of it or to reach network effects might be very high. So that makes them a very idiosyncratic business model. Another thing to notice or to think about is that the products tend to be free for consumers. 
And that's a very unusual thing to give your product away for free. The fact that you can get on Google and type a search query and not have to pay for it. So that the way that these products are monetized is through advertising, like the network television channels did before cable, for example, and continue to do. So it's kind of back to the future when it comes to that type of business model. But it's very important to acknowledge the fact that with these platforms, what's valuable about them is not necessarily the intellectual property rights connected to them. It's not necessarily the fact that they can license proprietary software, whether it be a web browser or an operating system or things like that. What's happening is that the data produced by the users on the platform is what's valuable. And the ability of advertisers or developers, but mostly advertisers, to target ads using that data, which has been processed by artificial intelligence, by machine learning, for example. Being able to share that data with the other sides of the market, again, advertisers, developers, even the handset manufacturers, makes the data very valuable. And for advertisers in particular, because they can target ads much more efficiently to consumers. So that's what digital platforms are. So now we can think about contributions that the fan companies and other digital platforms have made to the economy that might not necessarily be registering with consumers or even politicians and regulators. Well, maybe regulators, but not a lot of politicians who might speak against these companies for other reasons. But let's think about things like Apple. Apple is a tech firm that invented a whole new product called the iPhone, which was the ability to have a supercomputer in your pocket that acted a lot like a laptop, but that was mobile. And that actually provided many more applications, both in software and hardware, than uh, consumers were used to having before. For example, being able to uh, have a telephone that can actually make calls with a camera, having spreadsheet uh, uh, powers, having the ability to do chat, and having the ability to browse the uh, web, along with other things like having GPS and other applications around that. Another thing is to think about how the tech firms we know today, or the digital platforms that we mentioned, the fan companies, were able to provide products that were much better than the previous versions, like Facebook replacing MySpace or Netflix replacing Blockbuster, therefore generating much more consumer value than the previous incarnation. Amazon, for example, competes with brick and mortar retailers such as Walmart and Target. And because of that, it improves its online shopping as a response to this competition. And Walmart and Target also have developed online shopping as well. So the advent of Amazon and its competition with these other older firms has led to a new ecosystem when it comes to direct shopping from the internet. Um, and what exactly is the value that is being added here by the alternative to brick and mortar that Amazon provides? So it would be a value in many respects. One way in which value is created is that there's increased demand that was not there previously, let's say. Increased demand pretty much means there's a higher willingness to pay on the part of consumers for some of these products. And therefore, there's more demand service, not only by Amazon, but by its competitors, perhaps as well, like Walmart and Target. Let's say there's increased demand because the products can be distributed much more quickly and to someone's home. 
not only is there increased demand, though, so there's more quantity available in the market, but the actual price, even if the willingness to pay is higher, might be lower than it was before because of process innovation that drives down the cost of satisfying this demand. And finally, the quality of the products themselves might improve, too. So on those three dimensions, you might get improvements for consumers. I want to underscore the fact that none of these developments have reduced supply. If anything, again, the supply has increased to satisfy demand and leading to lower prices, not higher prices than before. And I did mention earlier that many of the offerings are zero cost. So not only is the price going down, it's falling to zero for a lot of the services, again, Facebook or Google. And so this encourages more trade rather than restrains it. That's something to keep in mind. Obviously, when the price is zero, it means that the demand will be very high for these services. Yeah, I would like to add that it's not just monetary costs that are being minimized by some of these innovations. In the case of Amazon, for example, you're also reducing transaction costs that would be related to you going into a brick and mortar store when you have the opportunity to shop online. So I think that is especially relevant during uh, stay-at-home orders or other public health measures of the of the recent months and year. Yeah, in relation to the public health response to the global pan pandemic, which Amazon, for example, has allowed people to effectively um, not really change their consumption behavior all that much by just moving a lot of their regular indoor shopping, if you will, uh, online. Absolutely. Another thing to keep in mind is that the entry barriers have been reduced for a lot of suppliers and a lot of retail outlets as well. The suppliers, let's say not only from the United States, but from all over the world now have a digital marketplace they can tap into. And many retailers can actually specialize around Amazon and enter the market that were not there before. And so these are things that might get discounted or that might get ignored by citizens and, and even politicians and uh, some of these um, critics of, of big tech firms. So it's just important to keep in mind these contributions. The other thing I would say is that Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, and various niche services have entered the market to compete with each other, let's say to compete with Netflix. So not only has there been increased entry, let's say on by suppliers or even in the retail space, and this goes unnoticed uh, sometimes, but also direct competitors, let's say when it comes to on-demand video in that marketplace. So there's a lot of things to think about when it comes to these firms. Now, we might also think of innovation. You mentioned some of the improvements in innovation. It might be important to think about the big picture with innovation. Big tech is responsible for the lion's share of research and development spending in the world. Computing and electronics is responsible for 24% of all spending on research and development. Software in the internet is responsible for 16%. That's a huge part of the R&D spending uh, that goes into what will lead to innovation in the future. To mention just a few firms, Alphabet, Google's parent company, spent $26 billion in 2019. Facebook spent $13 billion for R&D. And these online platforms are constantly renovating their products design and effectiveness. They're constantly spending billions of dollars to create better consumer experiences that are used by more consumers or, by you, or are used by the same consumer for longer. So these are things to keep in mind. 
All right. So it seems that these companies have provided both a long list of innovative products, have distributed them at relatively low prices, and are also engaged in um, yeah, enormous spending on research and development. In what way are these factors relevant to the debate on antitrust concerning these companies? Well, there have been a lot of complaints of so-called tech lash against the big tech platforms, but big firms in general, not only those that have achieved, let's say, network effects, and I mentioned why the platforms have achieved network effects or why network effects are important to their business model, but there has been a response. I would put it around preceding the Trump administration, but definitely consolidating around the um, inauguration of President Trump to office, distrust of power and concern for consumers and a concern about entrepreneurs, that's one reason. The, the concern that there's more market concentration, even if it does not lead to higher prices. And the idea that these firms are simply too big, or even non-tech firms might simply be too big. And there's this idea that these firms are monopolies, and that being a monopoly is a bad thing. No matter how they achieve their market power, even if it was through innovation or even by um, providing a greater quantity of products and services at a lower price, well, maybe they did that and that's how they became a monopoly. But now that they're monopolies, there's a lot of bad things in store in terms of their ability to, let's say, to ration quantity or increase price or do other bad things. There's also the idea that, well, maybe these Platforms control speech, so there's less free speech because they are able to censor or at least moderate a lot of uh, the information that uh, is disseminated on the platforms by third-party providers. Or maybe there's less privacy uh, protections. Again, the way that these firms are able to monetize their business model or, 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 or make money and, and profits is by monetizing the data that their users generate while on the platforms. And there's the fear that these companies are abusing consumer data and violating consumers' privacy. There's also these ideas that a company like Amazon is selling goods in a in its digital marketplace that they themselves supply. So they're not only um, involved in third-party sellers as a neutral platform, but they're also suppliers to their own marketplace, and that gives them an unfair advantage over other merchants on the platform. There's this idea that these tech firms are harming players up and down the supply chain. I mentioned consumers in some of my examples, but maybe they're harming suppliers as well. They're making uh, it less likely that there'll be a robust, healthy, competitive marketplace upstream. Maybe there's also these uh, complaints that these firms are har harming their rivals. So I mentioned all this very healthy competition in, let's say, streaming video, but maybe there's the fear that actually Amazon is harming players like brick-and-mortar retail establishments or even um, some of the other companies competing in the digital marketplace. I mentioned, again, Target and, and Walmart, but maybe uh, there's the fear that Amazon harms them. And then there's other fears, like maybe these firms are mistreating their workers. Amazon is, uh, is accused uh, quite frequently by uh, unions, by other firms, by politicians of doing that. Uh, there's a broader fear about inequality and that there's been increased inequality over the last 30 years, but that this has been compounded, let's say, after the 2008 financial crisis by the tech firms uh, uh, in terms of greater concentration. 
and maybe uh, monopsonistic practices with labor and hiring workers. And finally, there's this idea that these firms maybe are too big to fail. They're so important to the infrastructure when it comes to, let's say, the delivery of retail or of uh, goods and services uh, through the uh, digital marketplace that Amazon has so much uh, influence over. Or let's say Google search that it's so dominant that it's a critical bottleneck and therefore too big to fail or um, so important to the economy or so important to consumers that they should be more highly regulated. And that their economic clout, moreover, can allow them to branch out into other economic sectors that they're not currently competing in. And even worse, that this economic power might translate into political power, like, let's say, unlimited campaign contributions, or that this might hurt small businesses or hurt labor unions or hurt other citizen groups, and that it's fundamentally bad for democracy. A lot of this bad for democracy talk is also related to the ability of some of these digital platforms, let's say, to monitor and moderate the speech that goes on. Let's say Facebook has been accused by Republicans of censoring conservative views. Okay, so let me, let me maybe ask you then. Okay, so those are all the criticisms being put forward by some of the um, groups and individuals that I listed in the beginning. But Amazon is pretty big aren't they? Amazon is handling a huge amount of U.S. Uh, retail sales of all kinds. Well, ha half of e-commerce sales, half of e-commerce, not retail, but half of e-commerce sales. Yeah. Okay. So, so how big is Amazon then? Um, how relevant are they in terms of like the whole retail um, value chain? Well, the whole retail value chain, I can't give you numbers, but they're not that big because brick and mortar is still very important. But the the rate of increase is uh, mm -hmm. very um, astounding, especially the pandemic has speeded up these patterns towards more clout when it comes to retail, just because e-commerce is becoming such a huge part mm -hmm. of the economy, right? And if you think of something like Apple and Google, just not to pick on Amazon too much or, or exclusively, they combine now, they provide the software for 99% of all smartphones. Right. Uh, it used to be that Microsoft was a player and Huawei supposedly is trying to come up with its own software. But when you think of those two companies just with software for smartphones, that's a big part of the market, right, in terms of market concentration. Facebook and Google take 59 cents of every dollar spent on online advertising in the U.S. Hmm. So, so there is increased concentration. There's no doubt about it, right? The question would be, why should we care about this? Like, what's the bottom line? Is concentration okay. bad for concentration uh, for concentration's sake, right? Yeah, and it seems that the critics of these big um, technology companies are arguing that concentration must be bad for all the reasons that you're laying out, that it's going to hurt consumers, it's going to concentrate economic power in just a handful of companies, which are then going to be able to erect entry barriers so that they can remain in that dominant market position. It's going to harm not just those uh, companies that would directly compete with them, but it's effectively going to soak up all the profits up and down the supply chain, as you were mentioning. And then it's really the question, well, what are going to be the uh, bargaining positions of the workers for those companies, right? I think that's where a lot of the concerns of unions come in. Um, if those are the only uh, players, if those players are the only game in town, um, what can workers really do when they are being mistreated or forced into relatively 
harsh um, working conditions in some way. So would you say that this concentration shouldn't concern us in the way that critics of big tech have asserted? I would say that we would need a facts, logic, and evidence-based approach to looking at concentration and to looking at these other accusations. Because what's happened with antitrust over the last 40, 45 years is that we've pivoted to a more evidence-based approach rooted in microeconomics, industrial organization, and the consumer welfare consequences, focusing mostly on consumers of concentration, but also just on competition between firms and how supply chains work. So that means that for antitrust authorities to actually act based on existing antitrust laws, they require a higher hurdle of evidence? Not a higher hurdle, but they do require evidence that there is harm and yeah. that it's it's harm to consumers. Now, and there, harm to consumers has really become the touchstone of U.S. antitrust policy, is that correct? It, it has very much so. And then yeah. the question is, suppose there are harms not to consumers, right? Suppose there are harms to workers. That's an empirical question. It's not clear that that's true. I mean, we would have to perform a systematic analysis. Suppose that there are harms to free speech or to privacy. Well, that's really not about antitrust. That's about something else. And we could talk about free speech and Section 230 and the fact that monitoring or moderating the information on platforms actually fosters free speech instead of inhibiting free speech, one could argue. There's powerful arguments that that's what allows free speech to occur on these platforms. Uh, because of the fact that these digital platforms aren't liable for everything that folks on their networks say, and therefore they're not deterred or, or scared about letting the ideas just flow. But I guess the big point is if we're going to abandon the way we do antitrust in this country, which is about consumer welfare, what are we giving up? What have we been able to accomplish with the consumer welfare approach? And how is it fundamentally broken? It's not geared towards solving inequality. It's not geared towards doing anything about wages per se. Although there are certain ways of thinking about monopsony power when it comes to the antitrust regulation of competition between firms. But really, I suppose what would be helpful for listeners perhaps is to think about what antitrust is and what it isn't and whether we really need to reinvent the wheel and whether these are even problems to begin with. That's all. These are all big empirical questions. But maybe it would be helpful to understand what this consumer welfare approach is before we just get rid of it. Yeah, perfect. Could you explain to listeners how exactly uh, U.S. antitrust authorities have interpreted antitrust laws and how they have been enforced in the last 30 years? Well, you know, Robert Bork, uh, who was a judge and a very influential judge when it comes to antitrust, penned a book called The Paradox of Antitrust, or The Antitrust Paradox, in fact, I think is the right title. And that consolidated this understanding that the Sherman Antitrust Act of the 1890s, which was really about regulating monopolies or, or having a say over monopolies, should be interpreted more narrowly to be about how monopolies might affect quantity, price, and consumer welfare and potentially innovation. But the reading of the Sherman uh, Antitrust Act, and especially Section 2, and I can read that to you, has been to say we shouldn't necessarily punish monopolies. We should punish bad monopolies right. that use their market power 
to affect consumers in an adverse way because many monopolies become monopolies because of their skill, a superior product, foresight, luck, business acumen, or innovation. So the Sherman Act Section 2 says, every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with any other person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be deemed guilty of a felony and on conviction thereof shall be punished. So the observation made, not only by uh, Bork and other folks uh, from the so-called Chicago School of Antitrust that were peers of Bork and intellectuals writing, uh, both from the legal and economic perspective, but even folks before Bork understood that the mere possession of monopoly power is not an antitrust offense. So the question is, what does it mean to monopolize or attempt to monopolize? Not necessarily what a monopoly is, but that's part of antitrust, how to identify one, but how to identify bad monopolies or monopolies that abuse their market power by excluding others or by harming rivals and therefore harming consumers for monopolies that are benign or that might actually be good for consumers because they're innovative, let's say. So that's really what antitrust has been about before Bork and the consumer welfare approach. But the consumer welfare approach uh, since Bork has been about a very systematic approach using microeconomics, using industrial organization, using game theory to understand how to think about the Sherman Act when it comes to consumer harm. And really, this, the whole point of this is to look at the total size of the pie that is created in different markets and how consumers are affected by competition or lack of competition and how monopolies obtain market power, whether they constrain supply and raise price or not, and whether by doing that, uh, uh, let's say constraining quantity and raising price, Consumers are actually worse off because they're by doing that, they're able to exploit other markets or they're able to indefinitely protract their monopoly power. So it's really about whether these firms can acquire or, or monopoly through barriers to entry or impose their, those barriers to entry. And it's about thinking about mergers. It's about thinking about the behavior of firms with market power. And thinking about the cost-benefit analysis of whether more efficiency outweighs some of the problems when it comes to, let's say, market power. So could it be the case that there are more cost efficiencies and eventual price reductions, especially if there's economies of scale? Or could it be that a merger between firms will not necessarily lead to less innovation, but more, even if it leads to more market power in terms of a higher price in the short run for some of the goods and services provided by a bigger firm that is the product of two merged firms? Or could it be the fact that some of these firms that are, let's say, monopolies or that have market power are involved in so-called exclusionary dealings that might not necessarily harm consumers once you do some of the math. 
it might be the case that it raises their rivals' costs or leads to entry barriers and makes it less likely there'll be competition and therefore there might be higher prices. But it also could be the case that some of these things that look like they are exclusionary and that might harm consumers might actually be good for consumers because they might lead to more competition or they might lead to, let's say, more products or of a higher quality, or it might lead to a better, more efficient distribution of those products. So the bottom line is that what's happened with the welfare approach or the consumer welfare approach is that there's more than meets the eye and that you have to use microeconomics and industrial organization and game theory to try to figure out whether a monopoly is bad or good for consumers. You have to figure out how that company achieved its market power. And then you have to figure out whether it's using that market power to truly inhibit competition and raise price and depress innovation, or some of the things it might be doing that look like they're exclusionary practices, like tying arrangements or vertical mergers or refusals to deal with some suppliers or some retailers could actually end up being good for consumers instead of bad for them. How is it possible that a monopoly wouldn't be bad for consumers? Okay, first, let's think about some myths about monopolies. First of all, market concentration does not necessarily mean that there's monopolies or that there's firms exercising market power to constrain supply and raise price. Mm -hmm. One thing to think about market concentration is that it might reflect more efficient firms that gain market share by offering cheaper and higher quality products. So one thing to note is that we can't just look at the number of firms participating in any market and glean whether they're monopolies or oligopolies and whether they they will harm consumers just from market concentration. Although it's sometimes reflecting whether there's monopoly or oligopoly, it's actually a pretty weak proxy under other conditions. So then the question is, what is a monopoly? And a monopoly is not necessarily a very big firm or the only firm operating in an industry, there could be one firm operating in an industry that is a monopoly in that it's the only game in town, but it doesn't price like a monopoly in that it might not harm consumers all that much. Uh What a monopoly actually is, is a single firm that prices like a monopoly, where it rations quantity by half, and that's exactly half, and depending on how elastic consumer demand is for the product can generate very high profits that are an inordinately high share of the price, large price cost margin. So it's not any profits because most firms are able to obtain profits in healthy industries where there's a lot of variation between the productivity of firms operating in any industry where there's a lot of heterogeneity in how efficient these firms are. It really means very, very high margins when it comes to the price. Sorry, and this is effectively why a lot of people are concerned about big technology companies, right? Because it's a few companies, in some cases, possibly just one company, depending on how you define the market, 
and they are um, reaping in very, very high profit. They are, but it's not monopoly profits. So that's one thing to think about when it comes to tech. So just in the way that we're defining monopoly according to microeconomics, these firms are not getting anywhere near what would be monopoly profits. Uh, they're not getting anywhere near the margins that you'd expect as a percent of the price. For example, with a price elasticity equal to around one or 1.1, which means that for every percentage increase in the price, you get a percentage reduction in the quantity. So for every 1% increase in the price, you get a 1% reduction in the quantity that is demanded. For that elasticity of demand, you would expect 90% profit margins for a monopolist. Now, let's think of something like Apple, and let's think of the demand for a smartphone, which is about, the elasticity is about one. On average, it would be a 1% increase in price would lead to a 1% decrease in the demand for that product. If you look at something like Apple, its profits were one-third of its sales. That tells you that it's not making anywhere near the profits you'd expect from Apple if it were a monopolist with monopoly power. And it's obvious why if you go and look for smartphones, you're, you're going to find a whole bunch of different alternatives that run on the Android system or even on other uh, systems like the Huawei's new system. That explains why Apple only has profits that are about one third of its sales, right? It doesn't have the type of profits you'd expect a monopoly to have. It has profits that look closer to the normal profits you'd expect across any industry. Because Nokia, because Samsung, because Motorola, because Huawei are competing with Apple to provide handsets. Now, across any industry where there's competition like that, you'd expect to find very big differences in profits between firms, but none of them exercising monopoly power. These are the normal profits you expect just because some of the firms are more efficient than others. And if you look across industries in US manufacturing, the 90th percentile of the productivity distribution makes almost twice as much output with the same measured inputs as the 10th percentile plant, meaning that its costs are much, much lower if they're at the top of the distribution than the least efficient plants, allowing it to command higher profits the way Apple does, for example. So that's just one thing to note about one of the myths of what a monopoly is and how you would go about figuring out whether it exists. It is about thinking about profits that are so large, let's say 90% of the price when it comes to pretty regular, typically behaved demand curves of elasticity equal to one, like it with the smartphone market. And what that would mean if you have 90% is that you're reducing quantity by half and you're able to raise the price astronomically, which is not what's happening in most markets and certainly not with digital platforms where the price of the goods and services is actually zero to consumers. And based on this kind of calculation, antitrust authorities have thus far decided against 
pursuing cases against these uh, technology companies. Is that correct? Well, that's the first reason why. The first reason is because once you do the math, there's not that many monopolies. And the second reason is even if you are a monopoly, the Sherman Act says it's okay if you became one by being more productive or by doing something special. Mm -hmm. What the folks that think about consumer welfare care about is whether you'll use the market power you've achieved through innovation or higher productivity or economies of scale or whatever to then hurt consumers by dominating some other market or by entrenching your monopoly forever. But if you think about it, how do you obtain market power? Let's say you are a monopoly. If it's because of trade secrets or patents or know-how that cannot be stolen or copied or a first mover advantage because of learning curve effects or high switching costs, let's say, or a reputation for quality and brand loyalty, or let's say there are very steep costs to research and development in your industry or previously established technical standards or with the tech platforms, the digital platforms, network effects that might give you monopoly power, or at least very high market power. The consumer welfare approach says, it's okay if you're a monopoly, if that's how you obtain that power. What we don't want you to do is to then use your market power to harm competition in a way in which you can become a monopoly forever, or in a way that harms innovation, or that will raise prices forever. So that would be the consumer welfare approach to thinking about monopoly, not only how to measure it, and I told you how to measure it, you don't care about normal profits, but abnormal profits. But the second step, even if you've measured it, you then have to worry about how it's used. And so that's the big question when it comes to the consumer welfare approach and why there's been a very conservative turn. Because if you actually look at firms with market power, there's a lot of ways to look at the way that they behave and say, that is actually not so bad for consumers. Because what they're doing is it's creating even more efficiencies, or they're aligning incentives between distributors, let's say, and retailers. Or they're finding ways to produce superior products at lower prices. And so you've got to actually go through the logic of why is it the case that some of these firms might be engaged in what look like exclusionary practices, but might end up being efficient? And I could actually walk through an example if you'd like, or if you have other questions, I could clarify them. Yeah, I think our listeners would probably also be interested in understanding what exactly is the downside risk here from either a consumer or a society perspective. Let's say we have a company where the company is performing extraordinarily well in a particular market, and um, it seems to be charging relatively low prices, and it has attained that position because it's extraordinarily productive relative to competitors. Um, it might be one of the only, or at the very least, the most successful company in a particular market. And let's say we're not really sure whether or not this company really qualifies as a monopoly in the way that you've defined it previously. What exactly is the downside risk to just shooting a company like this down and just uh, splitting it up, for example, under existing antitrust laws? Let's say that it's on the border, that you have a case that seems like it could be a monopoly or, or a firm with a lot of market power that obtained that market power perhaps through innovation and through better competition or through some new product and other firms just haven't entered that market. But you might worry that it might use that market power to raise barriers to entry indefinitely, and you'll never get 
competition. And therefore, consumers will eventually be harmed because it will start pricing like a monopoly, or even if it started pricing like a monopoly from the beginning, there are no opportunities to bring that price down through increased competition. Even then, the consumer welfare approach might say be conservative, because if you break that firm up, it might create irrevocable harm if you get it wrong as a regulator. In other words, false negatives are okay because false positives might be worse. And the thing with a false negative, let's say you break up a, a, you fail to break up a firm that actually is a big bad monopolist and excludes other firms and does entrench its position. Well, over the long run, eventually that firm might be disrupted and there might be innovation that will knock it off of its perch. So these exclusionary practices might not last because creative destruction in the marketplace will mean that eventually the problem will go away on its own versus breaking it up. And what if you broke it up, but it wasn't a big, bad monopolist. You've broken it up forever, even if it could have led to more innovation. So that would be the reason why you would be reticent, even when there's a lot of evidence that might point towards this firm being bad for consumers in the short run, let's say. Okay. Do you have an example of how this decision process goes on in practice? For sure. Let me give you an example from Google when it came to the Federal Trade Commission and an investigation they launched into Google's so-called exclusionary behavior when it came to how it dealt with some of the search results that users obtained when they looked for information. Well, was Google foreclosing competition? Was Google making it harder for third-party providers or suppliers, content suppliers that were not Google, to compete with Google's own offerings when folks search for things on Google. This is one of the classic cases where let's say Google does have market power. Let's say we decided it does have market power and that its behavior will affect quantity and price. And we worry about it locking up market share and restricting competition and harming consumers. So it's past that first test. Now the question is, what is it doing with that market power? Is it entrenching its position and trying to control different markets and ultimately harming consumers versus a more benign situation where it obtained its monopoly or market power through being a better competitor than others, but now it's just playing by the rules. It's uh, offering more innovation. It's offering better products at a good price, right? So the question the Federal Trade Commission asks itself is Google manipulating its search algorithms and harming vertical websites, in other words, content producers that are, that are not Google producers of content? Is it unfairly promoting its competing offerings? And so the Federal Trade Commission evaluated Google's introduction of this thing called universal search. It's a product that prominently displays Google offerings in a targeted way in response to specific type of searches, such as shopping or local searches that you might do to look for local businesses. Was this Google using its market power to eliminate a nascent? And so the whole point was to see whether Google was abusing its market power and exploiting its algorithm to make certain websites that were not Google properties less accessible. 
and therefore eliminate them as a threat. So the big questions faced by regulators who were inspired by economics, and many of them were economists looking at this, along with lawyers as well, is how can we think about bias? And if it is biased, is it harming some of these other sites up the supply chain, some of these content producers that are not Google? And if that is happening, are consumers being harmed by all of this? These were the questions that were posed. And what the universal search algorithm was doing was allowing Google to reach users after queries in ways that it hadn't been doing before it had introduced universal search. It hadn't necessarily intermediated the search and chosen its own properties to provide any of the information. It was only basically third-party uh, websites that were able to communicate with users. So was the search biased? The answer was yes. Because Google was privileging some of its own properties instead of just allowing, let's say, the third parties to publicize the results of the search to the users. And it was found that Google was promoting its own products, that many sellers are biased towards their own products in a way that Google had also been doing. And it wasn't doing anything new, but it was definitely promoting its own products. So it was biasing its own products the way many sellers bias their own products, right? And what the FTC was telling folks is that Google was involved in vertical integration the way any firm would be in, let's say, a brick and mortar space or in any manufacturing space, where if you move up the supply chain and you integrate some of the content into the distribution, what you're doing is you're involved in self-promotion. But the reason you might be doing that, and this goes back to industrial organization theory, going back to Ronald Coase and Oliver Williamson and a lot of other important economists, is that you're improving product design and making consumers better off, whether it be because you're addressing transaction costs or you're shifting out demand and finding a way to satisfy new consumer demands, or just improving the quality of your products so that the quality adjusted prices of your product might actually be coming down by doing something like this. And so are consumers harmed? There wasn't any evidence that they were harmed because even if Google was promoting its own results, let's say from its own providers rather than third-party providers and being less neutral than it had before, this was actually benefiting consumers because they were actually better off if Google could highlight its own searches. These were innovations that improved the Google product in the experience of users. And part of the reason for that might be that there were plenty of other digital platforms that could also provide third-party information to consumers involved in search, like Facebook, for example, or even Amazon. And so this is an example where the antitrust authorities were reticent to even find Google or, or punish Google, let alone break Google up, because they did the uh, welfare analysis and realized that consumers actually were not harmed and were better off by some of these decisions that Google had made about how to privilege results that actually publicized Google websites or Google properties. 
But it seems that the winds have shifted now and that we're in a new situation, politically at least. But effectively, the um, concerns go in exactly the same direction of the Google case that you were mentioning. For example, Amazon is suspected to ultimately try to shut out all other third-party providers on its platform and ultimately only offer Amazon products. The, the problem that a lot of people involved in this tech clash are identifying goes to changes in the business landscape across the entire economy, but also embodied by the tech firms themselves in terms of being the poster children of the fact that there have been many more mergers than there were before with the antitrust authorities like the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice saying that because of efficiencies that are associated with the mergers, they are better for consumers or better for social welfare than uh, if there had not been a merger. So there's been many more mergers than ever. There has been increased concentration. I mentioned to you how under the consumer welfare approach, that's not a problem per se, because the concentration in a market might reflect more efficient firms that are actually producing better products at a lower price, not necessarily monopoly. But some of the tech lash and some of the backlash against antitrust, according to the consumer welfare standard, is that concentration itself is bad because it leads to inequality or it leads to big firms that are able to become politically important and maybe even undermine democracy. So some of the tech clash is rooted in those concerns. Some of the tech clash and some of the backlash against the economy and, and antitrust attitude towards the economy is rooted in the idea that profits for the biggest firms are very big even if they're these normal profits that I mentioned that are by virtue of the fact that in any industry, there's very competitive, efficient firms that have lower costs and therefore higher profits. Some of the backlash states, well, that itself is bad, and we should start to treat those profits with more skepticism. And the reason for those profits, when we come back to tech, a big reason for them why they, the distribution of profits has become so lopsided is because of enhancements in IT and the ability of some firms to exploit artificial intelligence, better infrastructure with cloud computing, big data and machine learning to gain advantages over smaller firms and therefore reap more profits. Some of the backlash, some of the folks um, that are complaining about this say, well, let's be more expansive when it comes to profits and go after these firms, no matter what, whether they obtain these profits through normal competition. And if they are monopolies, even if they're not using that monopoly power in ways that are bad for competition, let's no longer give them the benefit of the doubt. Monopoly in itself is a bad thing. So these are some of the complaints being lodged. They're rooted in an understanding of antitrust or a tradition of antitrust that goes back to the early 20th century, where Senator Sherman himself and a lot of other senators and Congress people, representatives in the House that signed on to the Sherman Act, were not thinking about the consumer welfare approach necessarily. They were thinking about the fact that big firms, they increased inequality, that they were bad for small business, that they were bad for entrepreneurship, that they were bad for communities because entrepreneurship or small business were the heart of communities, and they were bad for democracy. That industrial concentration led to 
big business that could capture government or that government could, let's say, get in bed with big business like the Nazi regime, and it would undermine democracy. So some of this backlash is actually historically rooted and is a challenge to the consumer welfare approach. It's looking at different objectives and it's looking at a different threat, let's say, from monopoly or from market power or even from normal profits that we haven't thought about for about 40 years now. And are there good reasons to do that? Well, that's where I think we should have a debate and conversation because maybe there are and maybe there aren't. To me, these are empirical questions about the effects, let's say, of superstar firms that are much more productive than their peers on the economy and on politics, let's say. For example, is it the fact that this is bad for innovation? I talked to you before about how the tech firms are some of the most important providers of research and development, sort of like some of their predecessors, like IBM or Bell Labs or Xerox or other companies that had these big research and development labs. They've proven to be incredibly good at research and development. So the question is, well, are these really bad for the economy when it comes to innovation? It might not necessarily be the case, but Maybe it is, and this is something to explore. So this is a question, right? Should we do something about this? When it comes to the fact that they offer products that are priced at zero, well, that's obviously good for consumers, right? The consumer welfare approach would say there's nothing to see here. Let's move on. But it could be that, well, maybe they have exacerbated inequality or are bad for workers, but these are empirical questions that we should probably find out before actually with our pitchforks going after firms that have become so important to the economy, especially during the pandemic, right? So if we're about to throw out the consumer welfare approach to antitrust and adopt a early 20th century reading from some of these folks that supported the Sherman Act, some of these senators and contemporaries of Senator Sherman, we might want to look and see whether uh, these are actually things that are dangerous, right? Or whether they should be broken up. But my own view is it might behoove us to think of a systematic alternative, a framework that can be rigorous the way that the microeconomic approach is when it comes to consumer welfare, rooted in industrial organization, rooted in game theory, and rooted, most importantly, in an evidence-based approach where If you think about a merger between two firms, the first question you ask is, will it reduce quantity and increase price? Or will these firms be positioned to exclude others through their behavior once there is a merger? And you have to do very careful analysis under the consumer welfare approach to figure that out. I fear with the backlash against tech, but the backlash against increased mergers or concentration or more efficient superstar firms, If we don't replace that with a systematic inquiry, we might end up committing some of these false positives that antitrust authorities have been so worried about, where we break up a firm that is actually a uh, bright spot in the economy that is producing jobs like Amazon is, that it's incredibly innovative, that's actually leading to lower prices and more goods and services provided, and that actually might have behavior up and down the supply chain that is actually good for consumers and not bad for them and might not necessarily harm competitors, but might actually allow for the coexistence with competitors. 
So from the large group of people, institutions, politicians who are um, lobbying or um, advocating for more stringent uh, antitrust enforcement against those uh, big technology companies, are they making a case based on uh, consumer welfare? Is there any merit on that front? You know, Nick, they actually lead with that. So, you know, before you, let's say, tear down a house and build a new one on the same foundation, or let's not even say the same foundation, but the same lot with a new foundation, you might think about, well, can we use the old house to pursue our objectives? And a lot of uh, folks involved in the tech lash and involved in the backlash against concentration and larger superstar firms are trying to use the tools of antitrust the way they're given and trying to use the consumer welfare approach. But I must say their accusations are based on faulty logic and a lot of use of evidence that's not factual or that doesn't necessarily give us a systematic story. So let me go through that. First of all, it's important to understand that the digital platforms, as I mentioned earlier, create a lot of value. The network effects mean, in other words, the fact that I get value because others are using, uh, let's say, Facebook or Google, and also advertisers are attracted to these platforms because there's so many users on them, therefore delivering or able to deliver targeted advertising to them by converting, converting their data into a more tailored product or more tailored information. That means that consumers are better off because they're getting better ads. and advertisers are better off because they're targeting better ads that are more effective. And this is reducing search costs and transaction costs for both parties. So you're going to have to bring a very high bar to show that this is somehow bad for consumers. Another thing where the attempt by folks that are critical of the platforms to me fails on logical grounds is that the network effects don't always lead to lock-in, which would be one thing you'd worry about with the ability of a monopoly or at least a firm with market power to, let's say, uh, consolidate that power. Consumers still have choices and they still choose the superior option if you look at consumer behavior. They don't necessarily get locked in. And you can see that with generations of networks, social networks that are replaced, like Friendster leading to MySpace and MySpace leading to Facebook. Or you can see the fact that there are competitors to Facebook when it comes to some of the same things that you get from a social network happening with LinkedIn, for example. Another thing is the folks that are using the consumer welfare standard to look at the tech firms are saying that they are monopolies or even natural monopolies. But it's really hard to argue that when you look at the evidence, because a natural monopoly, for example, has a structure where there are such strong increasing returns in scale economies that in the long run, their marginal costs are close to zero. Now, that could be the case at some point where it is actually very, let's say, cheap for them to provide the, their services to the next consumer. But if you actually look at the spending, not only R&D, but other spending that these digital platforms undertake, as the quantity of their goods and services increases, their total costs have also increased, unlike, let's say, a utility or another natural monopoly. And almost all sales for a utility or natural monopoly are profits. Remember I mentioned for a monopoly, 
when uh, the elasticity of demand is one, 90% of the price of a good is uh, uh, profit, right? When it comes to these tech firms, that is not what's happening. They are not behaving like natural monopolies. Another thing I'd mention is that there's healthy competition between them because there's multi-homing. That's a fancy word for the fact that I could go from one service to another or use several at once. Let's say I could use Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime when it comes to videos, uh, when it comes to on-demand video. Or I could use Google, Facebook, or I could use Bing to do search, and I could use all of them simultaneously. So that means there's competition in the market. Finally, I'd say that if these folks point to market concentration, this is doing violence against the consumer welfare approach because the consumer welfare approach says concentration is an outcome of market competition. It's not an exogenous variable. If you have more efficient firms that are better, you'll have fewer of them, but that's not necessarily bad for consumers. So they're cheating or, or trying to, let's say, find a shortcut if they just look at concentration. And finally, if they keep talking about monopoly this and monopoly that, those involved with the tech lash, they're not doing justice to the consumer welfare approach. Because again, I want to repeat, based on the Sherman Act, it's not just monopoly that matters, but it's what you do with monopoly. So you can't just scream monopoly. You'd have to look at the outcome for consumers, and you'd have to look at whether monopolies are entrenching their market power. And that has not been proven, as I mentioned with the Google case in 2013. The evidence seemed to suggest that consumers were better off, even if we consider Google a monopoly, right? So I would say that that then suggests why some of these critics of big tech have been looking for an alternative framework outside of the consumer welfare approach and why there's a lot of legislation and proposals at least coming out of the House of Representatives before the election, but still circulating to break up big tech firms, to look beyond consumer welfare, to think about a new approach based more on the early 20th century motivation for the Sherman Act rather than what's happened over the last 40 years. So effectively, that means that it's more likely that the other concerns that are being brought up by the opponents of big tech, if you will, are going to become more relevant going forward. Meaning that concerns over just the, the fact that some companies are very big, meaning that they're going to have a very outsized economic impact, potentially, that, that might be a concern that is not necessarily directly connected to consumer harm but just um, maybe economic capacity or something like that. And related uh, sort of the increased political um, yeah, capacity, capability to in, in some way influence politics because of the size of some of these uh, companies, also their international relevance potentially. So would you say that's probably going to become more salient in these discussions going forward? Absolutely more salient. And then the question is, if we do modify or replace the consumer welfare approach and the way we've read the Sherman Antitrust Act or even adopt new legislation, what is going to be the new thing? Mm -hmm. 
and how are we going to use it? And the one thing about the consumer welfare approach is that it's very disciplined by logic, facts, and evidence. When you think of what I told you about trying to avoid false positives, for example, when you think about the fact that at least it's rooted in a rigorous approach of traditional microeconomics that is coherent, that is focused on consumer welfare, which you can measure. We have tools to measure that. And we have tools to measure how it's influenced by mergers, how it's influenced by firm behavior, by looking at quantity and price. And another thing is that the consumer welfare approach had bipartisan support going back to the early Reagan administration and following through both Republican and Democratic administrations. Even Ralph Nader, a consumer advocate, uh, uh, that was uh, is very left of the left of center, uh, has been a proponent of this approach, saying that the co- consequences for the prices people pay for their bread, gasoline, auto parts, prescription drugs, and houses is what we should care about. And the Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations agreeing with this consensus. So I don't know where right. we're headed, but it's it's uncharted territory and there are a lot of potential landmines so i would ask you what are your thoughts on using antitrust for any of these concerns or i think one of the big upsides of the consumer welfare approach is exactly as you're saying that you provide a relatively objective measure to um, adjudicate some of these claims either way in the absence of which you're going to grant substantially more discretion to whatever executive agency that you empower with enforcing antitrust decisions. So the more you move away from an objective measure, the question is what, what exactly what you bring up, right? Like, what is this going to be replaced by? How are we going to make these decisions? Well, the, what, what I would say that still pushes in the small C conservative direction and disciplines what the antitrust agencies might do, like the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice, is that judges have internalized the consumer welfare approach when they look at the standing different companies have and the facts they might bring to bear in terms of introducing them into the record and the way they've thought about the decisions to make should benefit consumers. And they're very open to economic justification. So it's interesting how the judges themselves and the courts might be the one break or the one moderating force. When it comes to this, even if you get a more populist reading, so to speak, from the executive branch, where some of the uh, where the attorney general or some of the commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission might be more aggressive. So that's what's interesting here. That could be the way in which you get you split the difference and get a more moderate approach, so to speak. But if the legislation changes, it could very well be the case that it would be open, as you say, to discretion and interpretation. And maybe judges would start to be more elastic or more liberal, small L, on what they allow or how they think about antitrust. And it could just lead to much more volatility and open-endedness and a lot more variance in terms of what might happen. And this would reflect antitrust during the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, where it was kind of a a very open terrain and all kinds of reasonings and justifications entered the bloodstream of the judicial system and some of the decisions that were made about protecting small business, for example, about protecting wages, about 
even social and political implications that were less to do with consumers. So if anything, what we can predict, it'll be very interesting. Thank you so much, Victor. And speak to you soon. Thank you, Nick, for for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions suggestions or concerns please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com we would love to hear from you